This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room. This is Jen Rubin. One of the questions I get a lot from readers or from viewers at MSNBC is why does the press behave as it does? Why do they seem to give Republicans a break? Why do they seem to default to, well, on one hand this and on the other hand that? And many of these frustrations I share, I write about them. Sometimes I am perplexed as readers are, but there's someone who I think is absolutely perfect, ideal to help us untangle all of that. That's Margaret Sullivan. She was a former colleague of mine at the Washington Post as a media critic. She was the public editor uh, at the New York Times. She's the author of two books, uh, the latest being Newsroom Confidential. She now teaches at Duke. And she is the smartest person I know who talks about the media and what's wrong, what's right with it. So without further ado, nice to have you, Margaret. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We miss you back at the Washington Post, but you you. have uh, gone on to great things and uh, I'm sure we'll continue to hear from you. Thank you. Sometimes when I read you, Margaret, it's like I'm talking to myself because (laughs) the frustrations I have about the press, but also the moments of pride, um, you seem to reflect. Give us a, a big picture sense of what you think the biggest problem that the press has in the era in which we are presently find ourselves, Mm -hmm. which is war on truth, uh, democracy in peril. Um, One political party seems to have completely gone off the rails. What do you see as the biggest challenge, the biggest problem for the press? Well, there's kind of two things that are going on that worry me. One is the entire right-wing media ecosystem of which Fox News is the centerpiece, but not obviously not the only only part of it. Um, but the problem with that whole area is that very often they are untethered from the truth and don't seem to worry about it too much. I mean, that's so. And and I think there's a whole swath of the country that is very affected by that. That is, um, and therefore is kind of they are kind of unhinged uh, from the facts, from the facts, untethered from the facts. So there's that. And then in our, in the mainstream press, big journalism, if you will, you know, the big newspapers and the big networks and the cable um, networks that aren't Fox, I think that there's a tendency to... Um, you know, it, we like to use the shorthand of both sidesing things, like equating things that aren't equal uh, in order to do this kind of performative neutrality so that we can say that we're fair. And very often, I mean, I think in this particular era, that is not working well at all. And 
that's because when the truth can be found and you both sides, then um, you're in essence helping to obscure the truth rather than reveal the truth. Is that kind yeah, of the, I mean, that's, the that's, that's well said. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's not as if people sometimes, when I talk about this, people sometimes say, so you don't want to hear from the other side. And that's just not the point at all. Uh, we do want to hear various points of view. We do want to hear um, various sides of things. But we're the main thing we're after is fairness and accuracy and truth. What The main thing that we should not be at after is taking everything down the middle. Because as you say so well, that obscures the truth. Um, You know, I mean, for example, if you have a a political candidate or a bunch of political candidates who insist on saying that the 2020 election was a big fraud and that Donald Trump is actually the president, and then you have um, another side that isn't you know, invested in that lie, you you really can't give them sort of equal time, equal weight, equal emphasis and equal seriousness without, you know, being very misleading. Right. One of the questions I get a lot from readers is why this is. Um, Is it because the mainstream press is so nervous about being labeled as uh, suffering from liberal bias? Is it because this is just the way they were trained and it's um, very hard to break out of old patterns? Is it because um, their editors are making them do this? What do you think the origin of this <laughs> well, problem it's, you, is? Well, you know, all of those things are true to varying extents. I think that conservative, if we want to say conservative, certainly right-wing politicians and media to some extent have become very skilled at um, saying that, you know, saying somewhat convincingly that the press is so liberal. And because we in the mainstream press don't want to be depicted as liberal, you know, the response is a defensive one. And often it means kind of, okay, well, let's edge over to the right or look for some sort of center. And, but it's never enough, of course, because really it's not about fairness. It's about trying to change the way media works. And it's actually worked quite well. Um, But there's also sort of a history of doing things in this down the middle way that made more sense when when both parties were a little more sensible and a little more equal to each other. Um, You know, it's it's a lot of things. But I do think there is a a true fear um, or resistance to being labeled liberal. And I don't think, I, I think it's actually quite false to, to put that label on the press. One of the things that I notice and readers notice is how easily the press adopts the framing or the phraseology of the right. For example, how many times have we heard the raid on Mar-a-Lago? It wasn't a raid, they were executing a lawful warrant. Does that happen just because the right is so effective at mouthing that, that it gets picked up? Or is this another example of trying to throw them the bone by using a potentially misleading but right-wing phrase or concept? You know, this is a that's a subject in which I think leadership is so important. 
um, to say, here's how, you know, thoughtful style rules. We're not going to say, for example, uh, that the people who, um, you know, were the, the insurrectionists at the Capitol on January 6th, we're not going to call them protesters. We're going to call them a mob because that's what it is. Um, I think that's the kind of thing that needs to come from the top of news organizations and and sometimes does. Um, I saw that happen effectively and, and rightly um, with Marty Barron's directives on January 6th. Um, you know, to, to, the former to editor the right, of the Washington Post. Yes, former editor of the Washington Post. Um, to use the... The, the accurate words for things, not to politicize it, but to, you know, to, not to say, oh, these are like peaceful protesters. Um, so I think that, you know, it's got to come from the top. And it, I guess sometimes it doesn't. And then you do see the adoption of, you know, kind of right wing language and frame and framing, not just the language, but how is the story going to be told? And then, you know, what do you include? What, what images do you include? What story do you actually tell? When people say, um, you know, and there's this whole debate about objectivity and when people say, well, just be objective. What I like to respond is that there are so many choices in journalism. There are so many choices to be made. What story are you going to tell? What investigation are you going to do? Um, what headline are you going to put on a story? Who are you going to quote? What tweet are you going to use? So every one of these things is a choice. And every one of them puts a, a kind of spin on things that has to be you know, thoughtfully considered. So you can't really say, oh, just be completely flat. I mean, no one, you know, no one would want to read that um, because it would be so incredibly without any flavor and without really telling the story. So you have to think about framing and language very carefully. I also get the sense, um, particularly when Donald Trump was president, that reporters were hesitant to frankly say what they observed what was right in front of their face, that Trump was, if you sat through those press conferences or you attended these speeches, he was entirely incoherent. He, you know, um, was, I, I, I don't know what the right word for it was. He was crazy sounding. He was raving. He was unhinged. And yet, None of those descriptive words were used um, in the reporting itself. It was, he accused the Democrats of X, Y, and Z. Now, there, there was this effort to normalize him. Where do you think that came from? I mean, that's another, I think, effort. You know, first of all, it it it's historic. It, it kind of goes back to a time in which when the president spoke, you treated what he had to say with a lot of respect and and you know you could point out an error but you weren't really confronted with this constant stream of lies and the constant stream of you know crazy sounding as you put it talk uh this was a kind of a new a whole new thing and right. i don't think the journalists knew really how how to handle it but you're right this this sort of the language I think is very flattening. It kind of makes everything seem okay. And it's hard for, uh, you know, it's hard to write a news story that frankly says, um, wow, he, sa- he really sounded like a lunatic up there. 
You know, we, right. those are not the words of traditional journalism. So we sort of strain to talk about it and we, we use expressions like baseless claims. Yes. One of the other uh, bugaboos that I have is that, uh, and this is true, I think, um, regardless of who is in the White House, there is a bias in media towards negativity because no one wants to read a headline that says, the economy is pretty good, all things considered. Um, and so it is the constant drumbeat of not only gloom and doom, but panic, which to some degree, um, I think, does color the general population. Most voters think we're in a recession and we're not remotely in a recession. And if you look at the objective factors, um, things are going pretty well, all things considered. Is the negativity just a function of how you sell newspapers and how you get eyeballs? Is there a inclination perhaps to be excessively negative when there's a Democratic president? So it looks, again, like fairness. Where, where do you think that comes from? Well, you know, I think journalists love conflict for, for one thing. So if things are, you know, peaceful and running well and running like a top, that there's no story there. So right. there's that. And that's, you know, kind of understandable. That's, it's kind of, you know, it's just not as exciting. It doesn't get as much attention. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, a big part of it. And also I think, you know, I thought at the beginning of the Biden administration that the press might end up being particularly tough on Biden because for a lot of, you know, not the top people at news organizations. I'm not talking about publishers or owners or corporate shareholders, but, you know, kind of like reporters, maybe editors. They probably at some level um, were kind of relieved to see that there was some sanity and sense happening in the White House and that, you know, the country wasn't about to tip over into the ocean anytime real soon. So there was a kind of maybe some sort of relief, sympathy, uh, a reflection perhaps of shared values, which is not the same thing as shared politics, because I really, you know, when people say, you know, oh, you know, you journalists, you're just spouting DNC talking points. I mean, that that actually is not what's happening. But right. I do think that there can be some kind of, you know, I would say journalists, reporters, you know, believe in human rights. They believe in equality under the law. They think the rule of law is a good thing. So when there's someone in office who sort of seems to think that way too, you know, then it's like, uh-oh, but I don't want to look like I'm on the team, nor should journalists be on the team. So there's kind of this resistance about how can I bend over backwards to make it super clear that I don't even like this guy. Um, and I'm certainly not on his team. used to be the public editor, I think was the um, phrase at the New York Times. Now the major newspapers don't have such a job. Um, I can't remember the last time we had ours, but we don't anymore at the Washington Post. Why do you think they have stopped um, putting people in such a position? And what do you think is lost when you don't have someone in that role? You know, I just, uh, I was in London a few weeks ago speaking to the Organization of News Ombudsmen. 
And you might think, oh, there must have been only three people there. But actually, there are lots and lots of ombudsmen and ombudswomen all around the world. There were lots from Europe. There were people there from Japan and South America and and Australia. Um, But you are quite correct that the New York Times, the Washington Post, other big newspapers and other big news organizations, to the extent they did have an ombudsman or public editor, don't really anymore. NPR, I believe, still does. PBS still does. But, you know, those are public media. Um, Why? Well, there's the given reason and then there's the real reason. And I think the given reason goes something like this. Well, there's a lot of press critics out there, amateur and professional, and we don't need one in-house. We don't need to put somebody on our payroll who's going to criticize us and embarrass us. Um, And in fact, money's tight. So if you have a salary, you ought to give it to a reporter, not to a snarky, uh, you know, in-house critic. And by the way, Twitter and social media will take care of the criticism. There's so much criticism out there. Twitter will be the public editor. Okay, well, that none of that is is true. Um, and the business about social media being the public editor is absurd because the role of the public editor, as I know well, because I did the job for almost four years, is to hear the criticism from readers or the audience and to think about it and to take it to the decision makers and say, why did you do this? Uh, and this is bad. Why did you do it? please explain. And then they explain and you're able to feed that back in a sensible way through a column, let's say, to the readers. Here's the complaint. Here's what the top editor of the New York Times has to say about that. And here's what I think. You know, you have a, a experienced, a veteran journalist. In my case, I'd been been the executive editor of a paper. So I had a certain amount of, you know, I suppose, street cred. And, you know, you didn't have to agree with my take on things, but it was a reasonably sensible one. So that, you know, you don't get that on Twitter. You don't get the synthesis. You don't get the accountability. You don't get the answers from the top. You don't get any of that. And I have to say, reporters, in my experience, have gotten more and more defensive because of social media, because they are harangued, harassed. There is so much um, nonsense coming through that they sometimes miss the very valid complaint, the very valid point of view. Um, Someone pointing out um, that uh, you um, didn't get a certain point of view or that um, there is another way of looking at facts. So it seems that now would be a good time, frankly, um, to have such a person because, you know, listen, we all go into the shell. No one likes to be criticized. Well, the other the other thing is that trust in the mainstream news media is very low. I mean, it's it's rock bottom among Republicans. It's low in general. And I do think that having an internal critic like that, or even if you think of it differently as a reader representative, would help to engender and restore trust. Um, it, I know that it. I know that it's a useful role because I played it, um, but I don't see it coming back because I think that they were basically really relieved to have a moment 
where there were, it was a time of, you know, staff cutbacks and it was a time when social media was coming up and it felt kind of okay to ditch those roles. And I, it is very hard for me to imagine them saying, you know what, we made a mistake. Come on. I mean, when do we hear that? We, hey, you know, we really, we blew it. We made a mistake and we really need to bring those roles back. I, I, I can't imagine it happening, but I do think it would be a good thing. I mean, I will say one other thing, which is that when you put someone in that role, you know, you are investing them with a lot of responsibility and you're trusting them to be sensible and to be fair because it's powerful. I mean, you can't actually make anything change, but you can bring um, censure and embarrassment and and so on to the news organization. And you have to be really, really careful with that. I mean, I always, you know, I think reflexively kind of put myself in, I had been a reporter, I had been an editor, I'd been a a managing editor, you know, a section editor. I could put myself in the place of those people and say, you know, what would it feel like to have um, an internal critic bringing up my foibles and my you know, errors, and then writing about it publicly in my own publication. You know, not pretty. Well, not pretty. And, you know, like all organizations, news organizations don't like to admit error, particularly systemic error. Have, you know, papers really did not go back to the 2016 election and say, you know, all those thousands and thousands of stories on Hillary's emails maybe was a little bit of overkill or really right. unhelpful to the uh, the readers or even worse, the run up to the Iraq war. I have a, a chapter in my book, Newsroom Confidential, that's called, you know, in quotes, but her emails. And it really is all about how the New York Times overplayed that story. Um, and, and I think, um, you, you know, it's very hard to know. There, are, there were so many factors in 2016 about what was going on and, you know, including Jim Comey's role and all of that. But, you know, when just a few days before the election, the Times devoted its the whole top of its front page to multiple stories, photographs, analyses of um, of the reopening of this investigation. It didn't help Hillary Clinton, that's for sure. Right. And it didn't really help the reader. After all, the point is to help educate the voter about what are the most important issues, what are the strengths and weaknesses. It was overkill. And you are correct that if there has been a a self-examination, and maybe there was, I mean, I asked that question after I got to the post, I actually did ask top editors at the Times, did you ever, you know, go back and think about that? And uh, they didn't want to tell me that, you know, those are, we don't say these things publicly, but there never was a public facing admission about that. In fact, quite the contrary. Top editors said, well, you know, I I think we handled it pretty well. Well, they really didn't handle it pretty well. Right. One of the um, patterns that I've noticed, um, and it really creates a problem because, as you say, Fox News is completely untethered to the truth, is that mainstream media amplifies that. I don't know, and I'll be candid about the Washington Post, I don't know how many times you have a story about what Tucker Carlson said the night before on the front page of the Washington Post, or now that he's gone, what Sean Hannity said. 
Is it important that mainstream media kind of repeat this self? I, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to explain what a certain segment of the country is getting, but how do they do that without, in fact, just giving them more amplification and, and reaching the millions of readers that the Times gets or the Post gets? Yeah, I mean, I think there are ways to tell the story of right-wing media in a, in a responsible way. And, and, you know, there are also gradations of that. I think what you don't want to do and what you never want to do, whether you're writing about media or politics or anything else, is to amplify the misinformation or the the insanity. So how do you write that story? There's a linguist whose name is George Lakoff who proposes the idea of the tr- telling it in, in a truth sandwich. You, you say the, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer as you'll see. You, you say the truth, you tell the actual situation, then you go to the misstatement and then you fact check it. So the, the, it, the misstatement or the misinformation is surrounded by truth. And that kind of takes it out of this sort of repeated propaganda that's so effective and and does what you just said, which is, you know, a, a fairness to the reader, which is trying to get across the truth in a fair way. One of the other crutches I think that mainstream media has always used, and I've tried my hardest over the last few years to get away from it, is this constant reliance on polling, despite the fact that polling is often um, and almost consistently these days really wrong and misleading. So you wind up with a whole narrative leading up to the 2022 midterms that was this big red wave. And I wonder if that's um, because they've made an investment in pollsters and polling, so they don't want to have that investment go to waste, whether it's just lazy, because isn't it the easiest thing in the world just to write a piece that is, you know, the poll said this, the poll said that, this is what the poll said. Why this over-reliance on polling, particularly when it's been so badly discredited? The one, You know, I've learned a few things in my decades in journalism, and one of the things I I, I feel confident in saying as a as a learned truth is that journalists are bad at predictions, you know, and, and polls are kind of intended to be predictive, right? They're, oh, right. this person is, I mean, it's also one of the reasons that we seem to love polls so much is that it's, it feeds into that horse race coverage, uh, you know, right. that, that, you know, the, the, the campaign as a horse race, who's ahead, who's neck and neck, you know, is this, is this candidate edging this one out by just a bit? Um, you know, it feeds into that thing of excitement and conflict, and um, but it it isn't really very helpful. It isn't it isn't really what we what we need and want in our political coverage. And I sometimes think that if we could reframe, if we could do a simple little reframing of our coverage, so that politics reporters were thought of more as government reporters. I think that would be helpful, you know? So then it's not just about the palace intrigue and who's up and who's down and who's fighting with each other, but it's actually about what matters. What is the substance here? What will the effects be? The the excellent um, press critic, Jay Rosen, uh, has this expression that he came up with recently about how to cover, how to cover campaigns. Uh, not the, and he advises, it's very simple, not the odds, 
but the stakes. So not the odds, who's going to win, but the stakes. Why does it matter? And it's a great way to kind of just do that quarter turn of, of looking at it a little bit differently. And it would be so helpful. But, you know, we're, it seems as though the media is very addicted and to doing it that old way. So that, that is a long way of saying that's why it seems like polls are so, are so thrilling to us. And I do think there's an element of, yeah, it's an easy, seemingly interesting story. I mean, I read a poll story today that I actually ended up using in something because I thought it was so bizarre that surprising that seven, it's a USA Today um, Suffolk University poll that says that seven of 10 Americans think that that um, democracy is imperiled. It's like, really? Well, that, that's, that's pretty interesting because that means that it's not just one political party. But I, I also strongly suspect that what people mean by that is, is very different. Yes, because the Republicans think that democracy was thwarted when Joe Biden took the oath of office. And, you know, Sometimes, this was yeah, party. or you'll hear people say things like, and there was a Republican woman quoted in the USA Today piece, which is a good piece, um, saying, well, I, you know, I, she was worried about the democracy because she's, she's tired of seeing everybody in Washington feuding or fighting with each other. And while I know what she means, that's not actually the problem with democracy. You know, we, we want people to be expressing themselves and, and expressing their differences and all that. Um, I mean, it is horrible to see the amount of dysfunction in Congress. And, and I think she was talking about that, but I agree with you. It's like, well, the real problem with democracy is there's not enough talk about Hunter Biden's laptop, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it does raise another interesting issue, which is the House Republicans have now embarked on a myriad of really preposterous, in quote, investigations. And the hearings are quite comical if you have to sit through them like I do. And they wind up usually backfiring, usually um, revealing things that they don't particularly like, like um, it was the Trump administration, not the Democrats who were trying to censor Twitter um, and other little inconveniences like that. But the media is obliged, I suppose, to cover these things and to call them investigations or to spend time with the Hunter Biden uh, issue. And by the way, the Hunter Biden issue, I won't even call it a scandal, is so convoluted and so confusing. Um, There is a wonderful um, former FBI agent uh, lawyer who actually kind of explained exactly what this is. And about halfway through, your eyes glaze over and she says, don't worry about this. You don't really have to understand this. This is what they think the scandal is about. So how do they, um, again, how should they cover these sorts of things when they're preposterous? And why then do they, in essence, work by having a whole bunch of Hunter Biden stories on the front page of the Washington right. Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal? I mean, I think you have to bring a lot of context to it. You know, you can cover things. There are ways and ways of covering things. And we learned that, we've learned that many times. I mean, just think about the infamous, fairly recent CNN town hall with Donald Trump. Now, okay, 
no one wants to say that someone who's the leading candidate for the GOP nomination for president shouldn't be covered or shouldn't get to say things. Fine, let them say things. But you don't have to broadcast it live. You don't have to have an audience full of people who are going to wildly cheer him. You don't have to write stories that that put in their headlines, um, you know, the the outrageous, you know, sort of misstatements. So, you know, I think there are all kinds of ways to cover these kinds of investigations and to do it with a lot of context and to do it with some sort of restraint, I think. Interesting. The Supreme Court has now become a really hotbed of scandal and intrigue, much more so than in any time, not only in my life as a journalist, but really my, I think, entire experience. And you have one uh, organization, ProPublica, which has been marvelous in ferreting out these stories, doing the hard work. And it does raise the question, as to what the, quote, court reporters at the other outlets are doing. Do you think those other reporters, the court reporters, are perhaps too close to the justices, too enamored of the majesty of the court, um, or just not perhaps trained in investigative journalism? Why is ProPublica figuring this stuff out and no one else has? Well, so no, to, to me, this comes down to a, a common sort of split in newsrooms, in, in within individual newsrooms, which is you've got your beat reporters who are kind of covering the day-to-day. What happened in court today? What was the ruling? You know, who is the latest nominee? All of that sort of thing. Um, and they depend to some extent on access to sources. So, you know, they are, they're the beat reporters who sometimes can be great tipsters to the investigative reporters who don't have to go in the next day and and do the, the meat and potatoes story. So I think that that's, you know, ProPublica, which I have incredible respect for, and these stories about uh, Harlan Crow and about what's happened with Alito and his lavish uh, fishing trip and all of this stuff, you know, have been Terrific. And their whole focus is to do this kind of investigative work that depends on documents and getting the so-called receipts. Um, and and so they're kind of like what I'm talking about. They're the investigative arm of, of journalism. And the beat reporters, it's unlikely that they might know about something and they might they might develop it. Um but it's kind of, in a way, not their core job. Right. And I do think that we've all taken the majesty of the court very seriously over the years and perhaps um, showed excessive deference um, and that they should be treated like the other branches of government um, and have resources dedicated to investigating them and to getting, um, you know, the, the stuff that they would rather not talk about. Exactly. And I mean, I do think it's shocking that the Supreme Court does, is not bound by a, a code of ethics. I mean, they're, they're bound by the same rules and regulations that any federal employees are bound by. But, the, but there, you know, there is no specific code of ethics that they 
uh, must follow within the court. And that is really something that needs to change. And Congress can do that because we have checks and balances, and it's actually part of their job. Well, Senator Whitehouse, who has been on this really crusade for years, and we all kind of thought, oh, he's a little bit of a crank on these issues, um, really has the moment, the man has met the moment, uh, and he is working on his own uh, ethics bill. We've highlighted a lot of the downsides of the press um, and the negative attributes. Um, What are the things that you think papers do particularly well? And what are some examples of where you've really seen news reporting at its very best? Um, What are the, the pluses and what are the strengths, do you think, of the mainstream media? Well, first of all, I think that, you know, at its core, we need the press, we need journalists, and we need the media to be doing their job so that democracy can function. And, you know, in general, they do that. <laughs> and, and you know, so then you see great investigations and you see them in the same news organizations that we're complaining about here. Um, I, they could even be by the same people. Um, you know, journalists are human beings, so are their bosses. It's a very inexact art. The thing that I think I'm so heartened by and impressed by is that even though local journalism and local newspapers are so diminished and it's been a tragedy, you still see great local journalism coming out of these places. And I honestly am amazed by it because in general, you know, a local newsroom, let's just say the Cleveland Plain Dealer, you know, was 300, 400 people in the newsroom. Well, those newsrooms, those regional newsrooms are all like 50 people now. You can't do the same job, but somehow it's the people there, it's the institutional knowledge, it's the journalistic, you know, drive to get the story out so that when it comes time for the Pulitzers to be handing out, handed out, you'll often still see local newspapers so diminished and so withered still doing some of the best work. So I have to hand it to those local journalists who are not on MSNBC and CNN, and they're not, they don't have a book contract, and they're just doing the job and and often doing it very, very well. And you know from... Whence you speak since yes. you were at the Buffalo News. That's um, right. And you looked at the coverage of that horrible incident, the shooting incident, and it was excellent coverage. Yes, it, it, was. Was, um, yes, it was. It was very, uh, very illuminating. Um, when you look at the, you know, sort of scape of um, newspapers these days, you mentioned that local uh, newspapers are down um, and that the press has such a poor approval rating. By the way, so do most institutions That's in right. the United States right now. Um, what do we need to do to create a more robust media, but also more robust news consumers? After all, they sort of get what they want. Um, and if they um, are looking for gossip or they're looking for superficial horse race, uh, there's lots of people that are willing to give it to them. How do right. you break the cycle and create better news and better news consumers? 
Well, a couple things I think we can do. I'd like to see news organizations tell their own story better um, to get to to be more transparent with the public. I mean, call it radical transparency if you want to about how we do our work. And this can be right in the course of an individual story. You know, here's the here's the methodology. These are the people we interviewed. Um, You know, we you know, I think people should know that. And I, I think that would help. I also to your point about the supply side, the supply and the demand side, um, I would like to see news literacy or media literacy taught in schools and not just in schools, because the truth is that it's needed, uh, not just, actually, I think young people are are more savvy about where this stuff is coming from. And it's older people who are often sharing uh, misinformation in social media. So um, I'd like to see some you know, there's a lot of this going on and it should be supported. It should be taught and it should be, you know, spread out uh, far and wide as much as we can. So, and I think a third leg of this is there are efforts underway to shore up local news organizations and they should be given as much support as possible because that's how people get a common basis of reality, which we need in our democracy through this local news, which is more trusted than national, which is absolutely necessary. You know, the city hall meetings, the the school board meetings, the zoning board meetings, you know, I really think giving as much help to those news organizations would ultimately help this whole trust and um, truth issue that we've been talking about. One of the horrible statistics um, I constantly come across are the number of state capitals that do not have a local newspaper. And that goes to your point that where there is no sunlight, um, bad things tend to to happen. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, your book and what you're doing now. What what do you see your post uh, Washington Post, post Mm -hmm. New York Times kind of role to be? Well, you know, it's it's funny because last summer, last August, I retired from the post and I called it a self-imposed term limit because I was like, well, you know, I've written this media column for six years and I w- joked that there are really only five media columns that you can write. And I would write them, you know, I felt like I was kind of beginning to repeat myself a little bit. And I moved to my family's uh, cottage on Lake Erie. I sold, I went so far as to sell my apartment in New York City. And I thought I was going to do this thing that I called full FBT, full bore Thoreau. You know, I was going to kind of <laughs> kick back and look at the lake and think deep thoughts. But, you know, I actually did feel called to continue writing about the things that I feel passionate about. And I did that in my book, um, which is, it sort of started out as a memoir and it took kind of a turn into something of a manifesto about how to improve the press. So it's, it's, uh, so Newsroom Confidential is my second book. My first book is, is about the decline of local newspapers, which I saw happen up close. Um, but I, you know, Nowadays, what I try to do when I'm writing for The Guardian or whether I'm podcasting on Substack um, or, or teaching at Duke is to think about, you know, there's so many things we can write about on a given day. And I actually do try to think, what would actually be useful here? You know, how can I use... I'm very lucky I've had these platforms. How can I use my platform to do something that's actually 
public interested or or has a sort of a public service aspect to it. And it tends to clarify the mind quite a bit um, to think that way. You don't always end up doing that column because sometimes you want to do the column that's just straight up newsy and interesting. But it, you know, there are choices that we make mm-hmm. and I I try to make the choices that that do reflect this very special role that journalism has in our society. One of the questions I get from college students or even high school students um, who want to be journalists, they say, well, what should we do? What should we do? Um, And other than telling them don't be a journalist because you'll have a hard time finding a job. um, One of the things I like to tell them is learn about something. Become an expert or at least proficient in health. So you can be a health reporter or science. So you can be a science reporter or law. So you can be a legal reporter. Um, again, um, getting to your point that horse race politics is less illumining than the substance of government. What advice do you give to young people when they ask you about journalism or what they should do or how they get to be the next Margaret Sullivan? Well, um, I'm not sure they'd want to do that, but but I what I tell them is if they want to be a journalist, there are still lots of opportunities to do that. They have to really want it and you know, there has to be passion and there has to be, you have to start getting that experience early through working on student publications and getting that early internship that might be unpaid and really working at it. I know a lot of young journalists. Uh, my, my nephew is a reporter at Axios. Uh, my, my son's uh, former girlfriend is a reporter at a TV station in Raleigh. You know, I, I know a lot of young journalists and I, respect them. And I think that to me, the core thing is reporting. I mean, you, you know, try to get out of that role of I'm the social media manager or I'm a, you know, producer or something and get some experience, hard experience as a reporter, because that's the core of our business. And that's what you really, really need to know. And it's what's going to serve you the best. So it might not be, I would rather see a resume from somebody who's been a reporter at a lesser place than uh, some other role that's not reporting at a greater place. And another tragedy of the demise of local media is that people don't get that experience before they go to the Washington Post or the New York Times right. and the rest. The farm and teams have, have, you know, kind dried of gone, dried up and gone out of business. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us. It's been so much fun. Great and, to talk with um, you. Absolutely. Likewise. And uh, you can still read Margaret at uh, The Guardian or get her book, um, Newsroom Confidential. Um, And uh, we'll look forward to having you back another time. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Bye-bye. And that was Margaret Sullivan. I told you she was great. Um, And her book is wonderful as well. And I think The message that I take away from all of that is the press is so important and we can do better. We really can. And it's a matter of courage, the willingness to break through of a paradigm that doesn't really apply anymore. And the really the wherewithal to stand up to right-wing critics who have gotten very good at working the refs, as they say, and to really uh, make truth the overriding mission of the press. There is nothing more important now, given that objective reality seems to be up for grabs and that 
Democracy, after all, depends upon a shared set of facts, a shared sense of reality. So um, although sometimes it's depressing, um, I do keep in mind, as she said, that there is some great journalism out there. If you don't already, go subscribe to a newspaper and a local one, um, if possible, because they need your support and democracy needs it, too. And of course, tell your friends about this podcast uh, and make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.